Father, you give us joy of family and friends. You give us the joy of your indwelling Holy Spirit. We're comforted, Father, to be able to hold your word in our hands and to read and understand, to catch, an, to, to get, catch a glimpse of the glory of God as it shines through these pages. We know, Father, that our eyes are not able to behold you in all of your glory, but we can begin to understand a little of what it is, of who it is you are and what it is you are about in our lives. Father, we commit this morning to you. We ask you to be with us in all that we say and do. We ask that your word will speak clearly to us. And we ask you, Lord, to bless throughout this Sunday school this morning. And as the word is preached in the service this hour, that you will be very present. In the name of Christ, amen. If you will turn to the, surprisingly enough, book of Genesis, <laughs> chapter 32. I'd like to begin reading at verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who didst say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. Now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you, and make your descendants as the, land, as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's a tense situation for Jacob. He knew that he had to make contact with his brother Esau. There was no way to re-enter the land and to be on the scene again without making some kind of contact with Esau and settling the situation that had existed for 20 years. So he sent a probe. He sent some of his servants down to Mount Seir into the land of Edom to find his brother, to talk with his brother, and hopefully to kind of negotiate some kind of a confrontation that wouldn't really be an, a confrontation, but a meeting of these two long-separated brothers. Now, we talked a little bit about Mount Seir. On this particular map, Mount Seir is not specified, partly because nobody today knows for sure exactly which of the mountains in central Edom was Mount Seir, or if that wasn't primarily a regional name. <coughs> but if you look 
In the bottom third of your map, you'll see the name Edom. And somewhere probably around the word itself, the E-D-O-M, Mount Seir was located. Probably not too far off of the King's Highway, which is that dotted line running down there. And definitely to the east of the Arabah. The Arabah is, a, is the rift valley that runs through the Dead Sea and out into the Red Sea. It's a, uh, it's, it's a uh, fault zone that has been down faulted over the centuries and has produced a valley with escarpments on both sides and uh, plunges below sea level. So to the east in the mountains was this homeland where, Eda, where Esau was living. Jacob wanted his servants to make sure that they told Esau that he was coming only for friendship. He wanted nothing that, uh, that Esau possessed, it, possessed. He wanted no power. He wanted no wealth. He simply wanted friendship from his brother. He was to say, they were to say, my, your, your servant Jacob wants to, to re, uh, restore friendship with my lord Esau to kind of uh, indicate Jacob's willingness here. I think I mentioned at the end of class last time that the journey that uh, these servants would have made from Gilead down into Edom would have been a journey of somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 miles, give or take a few miles, depending on exactly where they began and, of course, exactly where Mount Seir was located. So the journey probably counting the time that they spent with Esau, took a minimum of a week, possibly as much as 10 days or two weeks. They finally returned, and of course, Jacob was delighted to see them come, and yet at the same time, there was some fear there. Because what would be the response? Did they actually see Esau? And how did Esau respond to this overture? Well, they said, yes, we saw Esau, and we had a great conversation with him, and Jacob's heart was beginning to rise, and uh, then they said, and he's coming. Wonderful. With 400 men. Suddenly, Jacob's anxiety level went way up, and his hopes went way down. 400 men, that's an army. What is he bringing an army for? What would be the only purpose for bringing such a large number of men but to attack? Certainly not just to come and, and meet in friendship. Why would he need so many men. Jacob, of course, was extremely frightened as he heard these words. Now, either he had momentarily forgotten the promises of God, forgotten the, the, the vision or the actual encounter he had with the, with the man named, the two camps, the, the camp of angels around his, his own camp, or, or more likely he felt that God needed some help here. So Jacob did some real quick planning. He divided all of his possessions into two great groups or camps. And he separated them and, and they traveled as two separate groups. Here was one group with uh, Jacob and, and some of his wives and, and some of his children and another group with more. And some of the animals here, some of the animals there. I mean, here they were, two groups traveling across the landscape with probably several miles between them. And he explains the, re the rationale for this. If Esau comes and attacks the one the other may escape. So he's dividing his uh, resources and his family here, 
hoping that some would survive such an attack. Now, that, of course, is a plan based on fear. That is not a plan based on faith. But Jacob has enough faith to, at this point, do a very wise thing. He did what he should have done in every situation as it came along. In every crisis that he faced, he prayed. And he prayed honestly, and he prayed humbly, and he entreated the Lord with great energy. Again, looking at verse 9. O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. You want to make sure that God knew who he was talking to. O oh Lord, who did say to me, the one who has spoken to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. Now he had been promised at Bethel that he would be able to do this and then God had appeared to him not long before this and said that this was actually what he was to do. And then he proclaims his unworthiness in verse 10. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Because why? He had crossed the Jordan originally with nothing but his staff. He had no other possessions. And now he is returning with two great companies of people and all these animals, thousands of animals, and uh, four wives and you know, a dozen children or more, at least a dozen anyway, and all these servants who are, who are with him. And so in verse 11 he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. And he admits, I'm afraid of him because he may attack me and the mothers with the children. For you did say, and he, and he brings to God's remembrance his promise, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Wise, wise way of praying. This man came before God, admitting his unworthiness. That's a great way to start in prayer. We don't come to God demanding things because we're such worthy people. Because if we understand Scripture, we know that we are not worthy of the least of his blessings. He came to God with his pride down to approximately zero, which in the sense of selfish human pride is where God wants it to be. And then, in faith, he reminded God of his promises. That's one of the great uh, ways by which we can pray to remind God of his promises, go to his word. It's not that God has forgotten. God remembers it all. It's his word. But he wants us to remember it. And he wants us to hold him accountable, not because he isn't accountable, but because then our hearts are more in tune with him. We think as he thinks. Because the will of God plays a great measure in effective praying. He was afraid, of course, that Esau might massacre his family. And so he was recounting to God that this would probably not be a good thing because you have promised to multiply my descendants as the sand of the sea, and if they get killed, it can't happen. Right, Lord? You're reminded of Moses later on who God said, Stand aside, Moses. I'm going to wipe out all the children of Israel, and I'm going to raise up a new nation from you. 
And Moses stood before the Lord and said, No, Lord, this wouldn't be a good thing because what are all the Israelites, I mean, all the Egyptians going to think that you took the Israelites out in the desert to wipe them out because you couldn't get them across the Jordan River or you couldn't get them into the land. Now, was that true? No. Where did Moses get that thinking? From God. Why did Moses say, well, Moses could easily have said, sure, that sounds like a great thing, Lord. Uh, then they'll be the children of Moses instead of the children of Israel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, this wasn't his thought. Because God had put into him the heart of intercession, just as God had put into Abraham the heart of intercession in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God here brings to Jacob's mind his own promises. Verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? To whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present to my lord Esau. And behold, he is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner shall, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. The plan is to soften the heart of Esau and to prove his sincerity in desiring friendship with his brother. So Jacob prepares a huge gift. Think about it now. We're talking about 220 goats, 220 sheep. We're talking about 60 camel because it says milking uh, camels with their colts. 50 bovines, uh, you know, the cattle-type animals, 30 donkeys. I mean, we're talking about 580 animals. Now, what does the size of, of this gift teach us about the size of Jacob's herds? Obviously, he had massive herds. He had thousands of animals from which he could draw this this combined herd. And certainly he didn't go around looking for the, the animals where one leg was short or they had a blotch on the side of them if there were any such animals in his herd. He would have sent the best animals because he wanted his brother to be deeply impressed. Now he does something very, very wise here. Jacob sends these animals to Esau in separate herds strung out over several miles of territory. 
I think probably since we're talking about five types of animals here, he may have put them into five herds. Goats in a herd, the sheep in a herd, and the donkeys and, and so forth. Five herds probably at least here strung out across the land, separated one from another. A mile, two miles, who knows how far apart as they would move southward across the plateau. Why? Why did he do this? He did it so that Esau would be overwhelmed by the magnitude of this gift. It's one thing to come up to a herd of 220 goats and the person and you say, "Well, who whose are these and who are you?" and they say, "These belong to your servant Jacob and they're a gift to you." Whoa, you know, 220 goats. Then to move on down the line, run into a herd of 220 sheep. And the same thing happens. Now for us today, it might not be all that great a blessing. What would you do with them, you know? You, some of you who have many acres of land, uh, that might be all right. But for us who just live on a city lot, <laughs> be a bit crowded. Probably against city ordinance besides. What was Jacob doing? Jacob was using good psychology here. Now he didn't call it psychology, certainly. He didn't go back to his textbook and flip to page so-and-so and say, this is how you build uh, you know, a good response on the part of someone, string out your gift or, or whatever. But this is, in effect, what he was doing. To spread out a gift time-wise so that a person keeps being impacted by a gift you know, every you know, time through several time blocks here is going to cause the recipient to feel very honored and possibly even indebted. To give time for it to sink in. Whoa, this big gift is mine. Oh, another big gift is mine. Uh, so that by the time he got there, I mean, what could he say? He's received all these wonderful gifts. If he were to receive it all as one big wad, you know, 580 animals all in one spot here, it just, he wouldn't have time for it to sink in. It wouldn't have the, the, the magnitude of the gift wouldn't really hit him like it would for it to be spread out. And therefore, the sincerity of his gratitude might not have developed as deeply as it did through the process that Jacob used. Each herdsman, we're told, gave to Esau the same message. These animals are your servant Jacob's, and they are a present to his lord Esau. And, and Jacob made it clear, say those words and say them truthfully. Your servant Jacob, my Lord Esau. So that Esau would get the sense of respect and honor that Jacob was according to his brother. God had promised to be with Jacob. And Jacob had reminded the Lord of that promise. So Jacob was well aware of that promise. This, of course, did not mean that Jacob could just sit back on his backside and let things happen because God had promised. It's sort of like for you and me. God has promised us eternal life, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to just kick back and enjoy this life and not seek to serve Him, seek to do His will. And so what we have here is an inspiration, I think, Whereas before, when Jacob divided his company into two because one might be destroyed so that the other might be saved, I think that was a reaction out of fear 
But I think here this was a God-inspired action. I think God put it into his heart to do this. After all, who is the father, who is the creator of psychology, true psychology? Who knows the human mind but God alone? It's been, of course, badly perverted in our day and age, and you have people out there with licenses who call themselves psychologists who don't know anything about the reality of what changes people's minds and what heals and what makes whole because they don't believe in the author. They don't believe in the writer of the handbook. They believe in a humanistic psychology which is, is based on the monkeys from which they feel people have evolved. There is a big difference between trying to help God keep his promise by stepping outside of his will as Sarah and Abraham did when they thought, oh, God needs some help here. Uh, let's use Hagar as the surrogate mother here, and maybe that's the way by which God will fulfill his promise. That was stepping aside from God's will. That wasn't being led by God in faith and action. There's a difference between that and doing something that is obviously clearly God's will. Giving good gifts is God's will. And, and thereby helping to fulfill his promise. I think it's really important that we think about that and realize that there are ways to act which reinforce what God is wanting to do and ways to act which do not. Ways to act which actually deny the faith we claim to have. It's, it's like the person who wants God's blessing upon his or her endeavor, but does something supposedly along that line which is clearly uh, spoken about in Scripture that ought not to be done, such as marrying an unbeliever, for example, knowing exactly what you're doing and, and knowing that this person's an unbeliever and being told that this is not right and doing it anyway because you want to evangelize this person or you hope that he'll be saved or, or whatever. Now, what is God's will in that kind of a situation? Well, it's clear. It's never God's will if it violates God's word. Never. God doesn't make end runs around his word. He doesn't say, well, it's okay. This particular teaching of the word can be set aside for the moment. You know, the, the church historically has had this kind of practice. You've heard of dispensations, right? Where you can file for permission to violate a church rule because you're going to do it, but you don't want to get in trouble for it. So you file for a dispensation so that you can do this. Our church doesn't offer such things as that, but historically there have been churches that have done that. God doesn't function that way. We don't say, dear Lord, I'd like a dispensation. You know, Please don't punish me for doing this because I'm going to do it anyway. God looks upon our hearts and he knows our motives. It's very probable that Jacob's immediate motivation was absolute fear. His motivation for giving this gift was not because he just loved his brother and he wanted to show God's grandeur and greatness by blessing his brother. Now, this will be true. Uh, this will be a statement he makes later on. But I think the original motivation was, how am I going to get this guy to accept me? So what can I do here? Well, even in the midst of our fear and of our doubt, God works and God blesses and God guides. And it's amazing what God will do even when we're standing there in utter horror and uh, the amount of faith we have is probably half a mustard seed, you know. 
And so we can only move half a mountain. It's the other half we're worried about. And that seems to be the situation here. But, but that doesn't matter. Because in giving a good gift to his brother, this was a godly action. It is godly to give good gifts. Now for Jacob, it was good practice. Because first of all, what was he giving as a good gift? All these animals. But how hard, it, how difficult had it been for him to get all those animals? It had taken him 20 years. Now, if there was something you labored for for 20 years and you finally got it, would you just quickly give a lot of it away or a part of it away? You might think about it a few times first. Besides, what example that he had? Laban. Laban was a wonderful example of miserliness. And therefore, Jacob could have used that as an excuse. Well, Laban was miserly, so it's okay if I'm a little miserly, all right? And therefore, not have wanted to give this gift. Giving is a godly action. Because who is the great, greatest giver of gifts? James tells us, our Father of lights. From him comes every good and perfect gift. And the best and most perfect, of course, being his own son. Christians should be the most giving people on this planet. And not just of material gifts. We should be the kind of people who give of our time and of our energy, of our concern, of our strength, and particularly of our prayer for one another, for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of God. A stingy Christian is an oxymoron. <laughs> Verse 22. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children. Poor little Dinah. She doesn't even get counted here. Should be twelve if you count the little girl. I would have counted her, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> All I had was girls. <laughs> I have no children under this particular. <laughs> yeah. And crossed the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream. And he sent across whatever he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he... Is there any way to turn the heat down in here? I don't know if you're hot, but I'm very warm. Does anybody know how to do it? Rollin knows how to do everything. You open the door. Yeah, well, that's one way to do it. Yeah, we could do that. Maybe we could open that door back there. Pardon me for interrupting here, but it was beginning to get intense. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone and wrestled, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. This, of course, is the quote, man. But he, that is Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it 
that you ask my name. And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen the fa God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Doesn't sound terribly appetizing to start with. <laughs> All right, your map, if you have it before you, if you will notice, these gift herds are going to be sent southward. They're going to be sent down the map towards the south. They are going to be traveling along this dotted line on the right side, the east side of your map. That's the, the route of passage. These herds are going to be sent down the highway so that Esau will intercept them because certainly Esau will be coming up the king's highway from Edom. Now, the king's highway, as I mentioned to you last time, travels down the top of the Jordanian plateau. Travels along the top of the Jordanian plateau. Uh, it, it begins at Damascus, or actually a little bit south of Damascus, and, and it goes almost due south from Damascus all the way down to the Red Sea at the bottom of the map. There is a connector that comes across from Egypt that is not on the map. But from Damascus to the Red Sea is the so-called King's Highway. This was an important route of commerce, trade, and travel. The more heavily traveled route was the one to the west called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. That comes from the delta of Egypt, travels up the coast of the Levant, and then breaks inland through the area of the Sea of Galilee and ultimately to Damascus and then becomes a single route as it goes north towards the top of the Fertile Crescent. So there are these two main routes. Jacob has chosen to travel the lesser traveled inland uh, King's Highway. There is actually a third route that I did not draw on this particular map. Uh, this, this map, if you'll notice at the bottom, is used for a different lesson. Uh, when I teach through the Bible in one year and we're talking about the uh, children of Israel coming into the land and conquering, I, I use this map for that, but it, it fits here. There is also, in between, a, a route that travels from the... Negev down here up through the highlands between the two highways that the two are shown on here It travels between them and goes up connecting ultimately to the Via Maris up in the Sea of Galilee region That would be the least traveled of the three routes. It was mainly a, a, an intra-regional uh, Highway as opposed to an inter-regional highway which these other two are and it was uh, the highway that would be used by the patriarchs inside the land. And it was the highway that Abraham used as he went north to intercept the, um, the army that had destroyed or captured Sodom and Gomorrah and the people and Lot and so forth, for the army from Mesopotamia. He traveled that route, and it's coming back down that route that he, inter uh, that he met Melchizedek there near the city of Jerusalem. So you'll notice the Nahal, the N stands for Nahal, uh, Jabbok, river or stream, Jabbok, which uh, is uh, right there between Ammon and uh, Bashan, and Gilead is that 
is the regional name there. The word Gilead actually overlaps both sides of the stream. In fact, uh, geographically, it's called the Dome of Gilead. And if you could sort of look at it from a distance, it sort of looks like the top of a skull with the hair parted right down the middle. And the, the, the Dome of Gilead goes north and south in the book. The, the river Jabbok cuts right down through the middle, incising that plat portion of the plateau and dropping down into the Rift Valley where the Jordan River is located. Now it's believed that this highway was called the King's Highway because it connected the capitals of several petty kingdoms that existed along there. As you study the history of Israel, you, you hear about the kingdom of Ammon and the kingdom of Moab and the kingdom of Edom and you hear about uh, Sihon, king of, uh, uh, of Bashan and Og and these other individuals. Well, there were about, oh, anywhere from four to six kingdoms strung out along the uh, Jordanian plateau from Edom to the north. And those were all tied together by this road. Some believe it was also called the King's Highway because occasionally the Pharaoh of Egypt would travel that route when he was either attempting to conquer that area or on a diplomatic journey through the region. Now, both Maname and Peniel or Penuel are on the river Jabbok. And both of them would be on the north side of the river Jabbok. Uh, the one Maname would be approximately where the highway crosses the Jabbok. That was about where Maname was located. And then over towards the west, about seven or eight miles down the Jabbok, would have been Penuel or Penile, where the event that we're looking at right now apparently took place. The Jabbok is a short river. It rises in the hill country not far from Amman, which is the capital of Jordan today the New Testament city of Philadelphia, not the Philadelphia, of course, that, that uh, John wrote to in Revelation, but the Philadelphia that uh, existed in the Decapolis that Jesus would have known. That is modern-day Amman, and it's uh, Rabbath Amman. It's the city where Uriah the Hittite died as the Israelites were, were attacking the walls while David was back dallying with Bathsheba. So the, the, the river arises in that area, and then it flows northward and then curves over to the west and runs approximately 60 miles. And in that 60 miles, it's going to drop a total of nearly 1,000 feet, in I mean nearly one mile in elevation, because it's dropping from the plateau, which in places is 4,000 feet above sea level, clear down into the Jordan Rift which at the point of its juncture is uh, probably not far from a thousand feet below sea level. One of the things that you always need to care, uh, bear in mind, at least I have thought we, uh, it was important to bear in mind, whenever you visit the Holy Land is to remember that the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, Jericho, and all those things are way below sea level. And uh, that makes a big difference to you. If you go in the summertime, it's hot down there because you're, you're below sea level and, and you've got that in, increased compaction of air mass as well as the intensity of, of the escarpment and so forth. In the wintertime, it's delightful. When we were there in January that one year way back, 
Jericho was wonderful, sort of like going to Death Valley here. You know, it was about 72 degrees, and the trees had fruit hanging off them, you know, whereas up at Jerusalem, it was almost snowing. It was cold. And uh, so, you know, if you can bear that in mind, and, and Jerusalem and Jericho are only about 20 miles apart. And, and yet the difference in climate is like from winter to, to spring, easily, in just that distance, because we're talking about 3,500 feet or so of elevation difference. So the Jabbok drops through, drops over the um, edge of the uh, escarpment and down into the Jordan Valley, and it intersects the Jordan River about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea. Now, some believe that the word Yabok, from which the name Jabbok is derived, means or meant flowing or churning. And therefore, it was talking about the fact that the river dropped, because of its rapid drop, was cascading a lot and foaming in rapids as it, as it moved down. It wasn't something you'd put your little canoe in and just kind of placidly flow down or go down the river. And of course, the further you went down before it dropped into the valley, the deeper the gorge got because of the incising of the river into the escarpment. Jacob had sent the gifts, one herd after the other. He had instructed them how far to space the herds and gave them instructions. He had sent them off in the late afternoon and early evening of this particular day. Then the scripture says, in the later part of the evening, certainly before it was dark, he moved his whole family across the Jabbok River. Penuel or Penile is probably located, and I say is probably, because all we have really today are dots with little question marks by them because there's no great city called Penuel located there or anything else. It's from interpreting the passage and looking at traditional sites, it's believed the site was at this particular place. And we're talking about uh, a point just before the river really begins to drop and the gorge gets too difficult to cross. And so it was sort of like the last ford across the river Jabbok before it became virtually uncrossable. And so he, he sent everything across, every one and everything and all the animals across the river, and he put them in, a, in an encampment there. Now, it's hard to tell from the passage here whether he just simply sent them across, which is the word which is used here, meaning he didn't himself cross the river, or just the idea that he took everybody across, got them all set up, and then went back across the river. It, it, you know, it's not really too important which way it happened. But the point of it is he was preparing to spend the night alone. Now, he was not spending the night alone just to be away from it all and get some peace and quiet before he had to talk to his brother, he was spending the night alone because he intended to beseech God in prayer. This was the purpose of his being solitary. He's on the north and his family's on the south. Yes, right. But Esau is hopefully many miles away yet. And it was night. So he felt, I guess, a degree of security uh, in that. The account that reads from verse 24 to verse 30 is a very, very unusual account and is a little bit enigmatic. You know, we just can't picture it completely here. But Jacob 
was wrestling with God in prayer. And as he wrestled with God in prayer, he began to discover that he was actually physically wrestling with someone he called a man. As far as he could tell, it was a man. It was dark. It was a black night, and he was wrestling with this one. I'm sure he would not even be able to describe how, how the transition came about, that he was praying, and, 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 and then he found himself wrestling with this person. And as the night passed, the wrestling continued. And as he wrestled on and on, he discovered this was no ordinary man. Now remember, as I mentioned before, I believe Jacob was a strong man. There are many indicators that he was a strong man. He was not some, you know, pardon the expression, but you've seen those old uh, commercials for, uh, um, what is it, Charles Atlas? No, not Charles Atlas, but anyway, you know, the muscle, old muscle building one. He wasn't one of these little 98-pound weaklings sitting on the beach, you know, with uh, pencil-thin uh, arms. I think he was a strapping man. And that's why he found this very unusual that this man could continue to wrestle with him all night long. When the man touched his hip, and suddenly it was dislocated. I mean, the indication is not that the guy got a club and whacked him with it, but just that he touched his hip, and suddenly it was out, and he was beginning to limp seriously. Jacob then realized he was wrestling with someone who was supernatural. This was no man. Certainly, he had been wrestling with at least an angel in human form. Most indications are that he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord himself, capital A, capital L, which almost always in Scripture refers to a manifestation of God in angelic form, and in this case, an angelic form which had a human structure to it. Now remember when Abraham saw the three men and they came and they spoke to him and he, he gave them a meal and uh, they began to talk about what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't very long before Abraham recognized that one of those men was God himself. And, and the passage of scripture indicates because Abraham refers to him as the Lord. Most of us sometimes, I shouldn't say that, but a few of us at times forget that Christ in the flesh was not the very first theophany, was not the first manifestation of God in human form. There were several of them in the Old Testament. It's just that Christ came to live and to, to dwell among us and, and to spend the 35 or so years here and, and then to die. The other manifestations were but momentary manifestations. When, when God showed up in human form to impress one of his people or a group of his people, as to what he was about. Now the picture is not here of a man, uh, of, of uh, Jacob wrestling with a man and holding on so tightly that this man had to plead with him to let him go, this angel of the Lord. Remember, God is almighty. And Jacob, however strong he was, was but a man. God chose to allow this wrestling match to go on. I mean, is there any such thing as a physical wrestling match that we could have with God that we could hang on for a long time and go 14 rounds with Him? Forget it. Won't even go 14 seconds. 
with God himself. It's like uh, Erwin Lutzer in one of his message was, message, messages was saying that if you were to try to stand in the presence of God in all his glory, it would be like trying to stand within a few <coughs> yards of the sun. You know, it would be instant vaporization. You know, couldn't happen. But God allowed this wrestling match to go on, and God even gave Jacob the strength to hold on. If you and I wrestle with God in prayer, who gives us the desire to do it and who gives us the strength to do it? Certainly it's not our own. It's God who does. So the focus of this account, the focus of this account is perseverance in prayer. That's the focus of this account. Now let me read to you this passage that I have on your outline there from Hosea. Hosea chapter 12. Hosea comes right after Daniel. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3. In the womb he, that is Jacob, took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. And there he spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Let me read you the words of uh, Henry Morse, who's written a kind of an interesting commentary in the book of Genesis. If you want to look at a very different kind of a commentary, one that comes primarily from the scientific point of view, read the Genesis record by Henry Morse, Dr. Morse. But he says this, as he felt more and more this conflict, he cried the more earnestly to God, seeing ever more clearly that it was not the immediate dangers that should be the burden of his prayers, but rather the accomplishment of God's will for all men everywhere. God's presence and purpose became more and more real to him until suddenly God was real. His uplifted arms were actually clinging to God himself, God in human form. Jacob felt that if he, if he ever let go, it would mean that God had left him with prayer unanswered. So he clung desperately, pleading all the while for his blessing. God in grace allowed him to hang on, seeing that Jacob's faith and understanding were growing as he clung. Think about that. His faith and understanding were growing as he clung. He had so much to learn. So much to learn. And he clung to this one. And his faith became stronger. And his understanding deeper. As Hosea revealed, Jacob wept and pled and clung to the angel of the Lord. This was a time of testing. This was the past-fail point for Jacob in his life, in his whole career. This was the great test. A time in which Jacob would discover that God had a bigger plan than just keeping Jacob's body and soul together in peace and comfort. And you know, I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. God's number one concern is not whether we're having a peaceful, comfortable, safe, healthy, 
fully fed and fully clothed life. That's not his number one concern. Those are byproducts of our walk with him. He promised to give us every good and perfect gift. Um, he, he says, you do these things and I will supply all your needs. That's not the focus of either his desire or nor should it be the focus of our desire. But that was what Jacob was doing. He was pleading, oh God, save me from Edom. I, I mean from Esau. Same thing. I don't want my wives and children and family and, and myself destroyed by this one. Just save me from this. And, and God was trying to reveal to him the larger picture that God had promised to preserve his posterity and, and that this promise would result ultimately in the Messiah through whom all the world would be blessed. Yes, I will preserve you, but it's not because I, I'm only concerned about whether you live another day or two, but it's because I have a great picture, a great plan. You know, sometimes we have a tendency as a church to only focus on our own little internal things here and only be concerned about our, our own little group. God wants us to be world Christians, to have a vision of what God is doing in Russia and South America and in Greenland even, you know. Uh, he wants us to be a part of all of that and not just focus in on this little diddly thing. It may seem big to us. But it's pretty diddly in the face of, of all that's going on in the world and, and, and what God is doing in the big picture. God was going to raise up a great nation. And that's what he wanted Jacob to understand. I'm going to raise up a great nation through you and that's why I'm going to preserve you. Not because I care. Back off that word. God cares about everything. But not because it's, it's of you know, universal importance that, that you live another few days. Because Christians are dying all around the world, even as we're here this morning. And some are dying in what we would consider tragic circumstances. Does God not know? Does God not care? Of course He does. But in it all, He has another plan. Just like as we think of this, this recent tragedy here in Reading, involving this Christian couple, and, and going back a year before that, more touching us even more closely, we, we say, how in the world? We don't understand. Does God not know? Does God not care? Does God not have the power to do anything about it? Yes, he does. But he allows it to happen because through it, he is intending to bring about something that we may not understand right now, but he's bringing about a bigger plan. He's, he's touching lives that may not otherwise have been touched. To go back to Jim Elliott here, whose words are up there. Why would God allow a young man in the prime of his youth, a young man who would not get to see his daughter grow up and, and, and be a wonderful young woman with, with all the grandchildren, that it, why, why would God do that? Does God not really care? Because God's plan was through his death and those of the other four with him to touch hundreds of people who would never come to know Christ except through that sacrifice. As I've mentioned before, Tertullian, the, the Latin church father is the one who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church will grow through the death of God's people. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his people. And so we must keep that in mind and, and try to look at the bigger picture as we deal with issues such as this one here. 
I've got a lot more to say, particularly relative to prayer on this particular issue, but I don't want to divide it, and besides, we're past time. So I will stop right at that particular point.